Let's pray together. Father, we love you. What a deep ministry you just gave us, um, being reminded that you are Emmanuel. Thank you for the last four weeks that we've had as a church to dive deep into the realities of what that means, that hope and peace and joy and love have been delivered in the advent of Christ. Lord, thank you for all the families that are gathered here. Thank you uh, for the privilege we have to, to be able to come and worship you openly, freely, passionately, loudly. Um, I pray, Lord, that in the opening of your word, you'd continue to magnify your son Jesus as we commemorate his birth, his advent in this season. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys can go ahead and have a seat. Hey, we're a first service church, okay? And uh, it, that, that's been proven again this afternoon. I did, did I say good morning when I came up here? I've been saying it all day, so if I, if I keep doing it, just forgive me. Hey, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn with me to Luke chapter 2. Okay. And if you don't have your Bible, we have one for you. If, if you want to take a Bible home, they're just outside the doors back here. Grab one. It's our gift to you at Community Bible Church. We want the Word of God in your hands, in your head, and in your heart. So Luke chapter 2 is where we're going to be looking. And as you turn there, um, I want to share an experience with you that uh, I had in 2016 that has forever marked me, like deeply impacted who I am today. Um, if you don't know my wife and I's story, we, we have been foreign missionaries for the large part of the last 10 years. And in 2016, we were living in Hindu South Asia, and I had this real privilege to tour a, a pretty remote but pretty significant Hindu temple um, uh, up, in the, up in the desert, north, northwest India, up in the desert. And um, the reason it was impactful was for a variety of reasons, but one of them was we were climbing it in the heat of summer, in the middle of the day, um, and all temples... Uh, if you can, would be placed on high places, so mountains or hills. So this one was pretty elevated, and that's pretty consistent, right, with our Old Testament scriptures. When you see in the scriptures that there were high places of sacrifice or worship, the belief is the higher the temple, the higher the place of worship, the closer we are to God, right? So in this, this northwest India, we were uh, ascending to this temple that was seated pretty high, and there was about 700 stairs that we had to climb. Well, about two-thirds of the way up, the group that I was with come, come upon about 12 older or elderly women who, from the appearance of them, had looked like they'd been climbing all day. I mean, maybe starting at daybreak, ascending to this temple. And what really struck me about the way they were ascending was every five to ten stairs, they would stop and then lie face down on these stairs, utter a prayer, and then proceed to the next five to ten stairs. So you can imagine that's taking a good bit of time. And, and they were doing that to, to warrant merit, to maybe show their piety in an effort to when they sat in front of that deity at the top of this temple, maybe he would, he would for sure hear them based on the merit that they had earned. So we, we beat that group of women to the top of that temple by about 30 minutes. Um, that had given our tour guide plenty of time to kind of explain the history of that temple, the, the meaning of that deity that was inside that temple. And as soon as he concludes his kind of tour guide speech, in come these 12 ladies. Um, but the way they came in and what they did once they came in, man, has forever marked me. They came, found their way to the inner courtyard, laid down in front of this temple, which was kind of in this inner, inner sanctum of this um, temple, and they began to wail. I mean, grief and pain and suffering, like authentic tears in front of this deity. And then all of a sudden, almost, almost in unison, they began to chant this one particular prayer. And my Hindi at the time was, was conversational at best, so I asked our tour guide, hey, t tell me, what are they saying? Like, I need to know. And I wrote it down. Here's what they said. Oh, God, why won't you come down? Why won't you come down? You're so far away up here. Why 
while we are down there, why won't you come down? Why won't you come down? We're hurting down there. We are in need down there, but you're way up here. Why won't you come down? Why won't you come down? You hear that. You hear the grief in that. For very apparent reasons, y'all, especially on a, a day like Christmas, that deeply impacted me. The genuine grief, the, the visible display of pain and suffering, but also knowing that since we were missionaries in that area, knowing that they had never heard the story of Christmas, that they weren't familiar with the reality that God has come down, that he already had come down, and he came down for the very reason that they were coming up, that they were ascending. He came to enter into our pain to enter into our suffering, to enter into our grief, to bring consolation and comfort. He came ultimately to rescue and to save. It was tragic, deeply marred me and impacted me that day. And I don't want to be like too exaggerated in what I'm going to say, but I think it's, it's equally tragic that every year we as American Christians gather on days like today, we, we flood ourselves with this, the Christmas story, right? In this season, like you turn on a radio station and you, and you hear the Christmas story. You turn on any TV show or channel other than Hallmark. We talked about that last week. Nobody turn on Hallmark channel in this season, okay? It's not good for you. But when we turn on TV, what we're familiarized with and what we hear over and over is the Christmas story, right? The truth that Jesus, God in flesh, has come down. But I, I think what's tragic is that we've allowed the familiarity of that story to, to kind of just make us lose the wonder of it, right? Climbing 700 stairs brings it into a little bit of perspective. But, but when we're here and we're familiar with it and we hear it year after year after year, I think the familiarity of it has, has kind of numbed us a little bit. We've, we've lost the sense of wonder and the sense of, the, of marveling at the truth that God has come down. So usually I preach for about 40 minutes, okay? I try to keep it, you know, less than that. Today, we're not gonna go near that far. I know we got kids in the room. So the, the next 10 to 15 minutes, I just wanna try to infuse in our Christmas a little bit of wonder. Uh, maybe bring us back to a little bit of marveling. And specifically what, else, what I want us to look at is the humility that is found in the Christmas story. The humility, right? We, we've lit in these candles over the last four weeks. We've looked at hope. We've looked at peace. We've looked at joy. We've looked at love. This week, I want us to look at the Christmas story and see the humility that surrounds it. Mother Teresa, a, a fairly humble person herself, says um, that all, of all the attributes of Christ, it's his humility that impresses me most of all. I can't help but to agree. So let's look, let's wonder and marvel together at the humility of Christ that's found in the Christmas story. So I'm gonna read Luke chapter two, verses one through seven. It's the same passage that Scott and Lisa read for us, but I want us to notice the humility in it. Verse one, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house in the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. What I want us to see is the humility of Christ in this Christmas story. And the first thing that pops out to me when I read these, these seven verses is the humility seen in the town in which he was born. Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but he's king of kings, he's Lord of lords. We would expect for him to be born in the city of what? Jerusalem. Yeah, you can get involved. Here we go. 
he was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. It's his humility seen in the fact that he was born in Bethlehem, not Jerusalem. So a, a census ordered by Caesar Augustus himself drives them to their ancestral homes, right? And what we read is that Joseph's ancestral home was the city of David, Bethlehem. But what's confusing about that is in Scripture, the city of David is also Jerusalem. And we know that Jerusalem was the city of David because he chose Jerusalem to be the, the, the capital of his kingdom. And in the golden years of Israel, we know that the temple was built in Jerusalem. So all of Israel would come to Jerusalem. That's a city that's fit for a king, right? That's the city that we would think Christ would be born. But he bypasses Jerusalem. They, they travel another five miles south down the hill to this little no-name town of Bethlehem. If you're from around these parts, being born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem, would, would almost be the equivalent maybe of being born in Sunbury. You ever been to Sunbury? No, you know, never heard of that. That's the point, okay? Some of you live in Sunbury. I'm sorry for offending you, but you understand. That's why you moved to Sunbury. You moved to Sunbury so you don't have to deal with the traffic of Savannah, right? And that's similar to Bethlehem. It's a no-name, insignificant, small little town. Micah the prophet says in Micah 5 verse 2, But you, O Bethlehem, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come from, uh, forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. Bethlehem, defined as, as too little. Little in size, little in significance, yet in spite of all of that, that's the birthplace of the Messiah, of Christ. His humility is seen in the fact he was born in Bethlehem, not in Jerusalem. Okay, let's, let's keep going. I see his humility not just in the town he was born, but, but the specific location that he was born. Look at, look at verse 7. She gave birth laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. His humility is seen in the fact that Christ was laid in hay, not a Hyatt, not a Hilton. I'm a Marriott Rewards person, so I don't, I don't know what rhymes with H there, but you see where I'm headed, okay? Jesus was laid in hay, not in, not in some five-star luxurious hotel. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, royalty was swaddled in rags and then laid in hay instead of being born in some Hilton or Hyatt. And what we read in this is that Mary herself, she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in these swaddling clothes, and then laid him in a manger. That insinuates there was no servants there, no maids, no nurses. Mary is giving labor and delivery all alone. It was alone and lonely that the Messiah entered into the world, and then he was laid in hay, not in Hyatt. Now, many assume that the manger that we read in Scripture is like the, the current depiction that we use in our nativity scenes. You know, all the nativities that we, we put up that we think it's some kind of a detached barn far away from the private residence. That's actually probably not accurate. When we were missionaries in North Africa, we would travel to these high atlas uh, Berber villages where, where there were shepherd people. They, they were farmers. They had a bunch of livestock. And we would live in their home as long as we were there. And their home was, was a square building. With, and you, and you kind of come in, if you can try to envision this, you walk in and there's like an open air courtyard, square courtyard, about this size. And off to the right of that courtyard is a room. To the center of that courtyard is a room. And then there's probably a kitchen over here. That's probably more close to what the manger is than some detached barn. Because at night, what those Berbers would do is they'd bring all their livestock into that courtyard. They would go stay in the room. The livestock would stay in the courtyard. So when there was no place in the end, those rooms were full. But here's Mary giving delivery in, in around all these livestock in this open courtyard. His humility is seen in the way that he was born, in where he was laid, laid in hay, not in a Hyatt. All right, I'm keep going, okay? You're probably getting tired already. Luke chapter 2, verse 8. We'll see the humility of Christ in the visitors that dropped by that night. 
In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. Angel of the Lord appeared to him. The glory of the Lord shone around him. They were filled with fear. And the angel said, listen, don't be afraid. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then all of a sudden, once the angels leave, this is what the angels did. The angels went away from them. The shepherds said to one another, let's go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. The visitors that came that, that night when Jesus was born were shepherds. We would expect kings, royalty, right? The, the wealthy, the powerful, whoever's in your mind of, of, of a big deal. That's what we would expect to visit the king of kings on the night of his birth. But instead of sultans, he got shepherds. Again, those little nativities, again, we, we build them up to be the shepherds, and you got a camel, right, over here. And then we have the three kings, the magi, the kings of the east. And you're going, hey, the kings were there. Actually, the scholars and the, the commentators would argue that the magi showed up about a year later to give, to, to, to give their gifts. And, and I'm really going to nerd out. I was not planning to say this. And the reason they believe that is because Herod ends up killing all the kids in that area two years or less. Why two years? Because the Magi had come much later after he was born, okay? So the Magi probably weren't there at the nativity. Instead, the only visitors at the birth of Christ were shepherds. And shepherds, as a class of people, had a bad reputation, despised occupation. In, gen in general, shepherds were dishonest, and according to Jewish law, they're unclean. Outcasts, sinners, yet the first recipients of the good news of the gospel. Jesus' humility is seen in shepherds, not in sultans. And let me give you one more, okay? Luke chapter 2, verse 22, if you want to turn there. After Mary had given birth, the time came for their pur purification according to the law of Moses. It's about 40 days. So Mary and Joseph come to Jerusalem to present Jesus to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice. It's verse 24. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. But the humility of Christ is found in that sacrifice. What would we expect in a sacrifice? And what the law actually called for is the sacrifice of a lamb. The sacrifice of a lamb. In Leviticus chapter 12, a lamb was to be expected. But verse 8 in Leviticus 12 says this. If she cannot afford a lamb, she shall take two turtle doves or two pigeons. And the priest shall make atonement for her and she shall be clean. If she can't afford one. What that means is that Jesus was born into destitute poverty, not prosperity. Poverty, not prosperity. And y'all, on and on and on I can go. In the birth story of Christ, it is surrounded by humility. And as he grew in wisdom and stature with both God and man, the humility surrounding the birth of Jesus only, only continued to grow throughout the life of Jesus. Okay, I'm not going to turn our attention to a bunch of different scriptures, but just, just listen to the life of Christ. His early childhood was lived as a refugee in Egypt. His youth was spent in Nazareth a place of destitute poverty, a place where one of his disciples, Nathaniel, said, what, could ever, what, what good could ever come from the land of Nazareth? We know that in Isaiah 53, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He, he wasn't anybody special, just humble. In his ministry, Jesus had nowhere to lay his head, so he owned no home, no property. He was dependent upon the charity of others to support his needs. Y'all, he was a foot washer, a position reserved for the lowest of servants and slaves. Friend of fishermen, tax collectors, sinners, rider of donkeys, not stallions. The life of Christ is surrounded by humility. And of course, as we look at the death of Christ, we see his humility too. Bearer of a crown of thorns, although he was worthy of a crown of gold. Silent in the face of all his accusations, though we know from scripture, at one word of his command, legions of angels could come in his defense. 
crucified like a criminal in between two other criminals condemned to die for their crime. Paul, writing about the humility of his death in Philippians 2, says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Humble. The humility of Christ is, is magnified in his birth, in his life, and in his death. He has come down, right? He has. He has come down. And as seen in his birth, his life, and his death, he came to associate with the lowly, the poor, the outcasts. Y'all, he came humbly. And because of that, I think because of how humble he is in his birth, in his life, in his death, I think tragically we struggle to acknowledge him. We struggle to accept him. We, we see his seeming insignificance and just kind of say, you're not really anybody special. No room for you, right? No room for you in the end of my life, in the end of my heart. I'm afraid that the familiarity of that has, lo- has caused us to lose the wonder of the humility of Jesus. So hang in there with me for just another minute. Because what makes his humility so shocking is not his birth, but his actual beginnings, right? Because as we've studied over the last month, Jesus was God, like was God. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, which is Luke one thirty five. He was called to be the son of God. We looked at Isaiah 9 a few weeks ago where he would be a son who would carry the government upon his shoulders. His name would be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, which is not the first person of the Trinity. That's the heart that he leads out of. He's fatherly in his love for us, and he'd be called the Prince of Peace. We saw in Isaiah chapter 9 that his kingdom would increase, and to it there would be no end. Y'all, this baby that was born in Bethlehem, born into poverty, all of that, that guy was God. God. The word who was, um, the, the word that was with God, the word that is God, took on flesh. This baby was God, the second person of the Trinity. Listen to these scriptures that, that Paul wrote about the divinity of Jesus. He's the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things, listen to this, were created through him and for him. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Hebrews says his son who was appointed heir of all things. And through that son, he created the world. That baby is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. That baby was God. Before he came down, he created the world. He orchestrated all events of all human history, and he upholds those events by the word of his power. That means that he had been planning to come down for a really long time. You following the logic here? He was God. He didn't, he didn't get caught by surprise when Caesar Augustus said, I need census, let's, let's move him to Bethlehem. He, he orchestrated that. He created that plan. He oversaw that plan. He wasn't surprised by it. So what that means is he could have made reservations at the Hyatt, right? He knew it was coming, but he chose to be laid in hay. He could have had sultans, the rich, the powerful, the famous come to visit him. Instead, he chose shepherds. He could have arranged the sacrifice of 144,000 livestock, which is what Solomon did when they inaugurated the temple. Instead, he chose to embrace poverty, not prosperity, and manage just a pair of turtle doves. You following this, this track here? He could have done all that, yet chose to come humbly. So it should lead us to ask one simple question. Why? Why would he do that? Why would Jesus come so humbly? 
There's a lot of ways I could answer that, but I just want to answer it really simply. It's because Jesus loves humble things. Jesus loves humble things. He loves humble places, places like a virgin's womb, a no-name town, a manger, a criminal's cross. Jesus loves humble places. He also loves humble hearts. God says he rejects the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. He loves humble hearts. The proud look upon his seeming insignificance, and we reject him, just like people have done for centuries. Every year, we hear the familiarity of such a humble, foolish story like Christmas, and in the pride of our hearts, we reject him. C.S. Lewis once said this, a proud man is always looking down on things and on people. But of course, as long as you're looking down, you cannot see something above you. So as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says this message, this message that God has come down in human form. It was born humble, lived humble, died humbly. That message, it's foolishness to those who are perishing. To the proud, it, it's, it's folly. But to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul goes on to say, so where is the one who is wise? In light of this humble, weak story, in this foolish story, where is the wise one? He says that he's made foolish the wisdom of this world. In light of this humble story, where is the one who is strong? Paul says that this weak story, in, in light of the humility of Christ, he's made foolish the strength of man. Listen to the conclusion that Paul draws. Not many who are wise according to worldly standards, not many powerful, not many of noble birth can accept such a humble Savior. But God has chosen what is foolish in this world to shame the wise. God has chosen what is humble and weak in this world to shame the strong. He has chosen what is low and despised in the world so that, you want to know the why? So that no human being will ever be able to boast in his presence. Y'all, we're prideful. We, we live our lives pridefully. We, we want to conquer life by pulling ourselves up by our bootstraps to stand before God one day and say, look at all the accolades I have. Look at all the accomplishments. I, you nudge the person next to you, you go, I've been better than them. Don't I deserve to be here? We stand upon our own pride, but he has chosen a humble Savior to humiliate your pride so that no one can boast in the presence of God. We, we have to be humble. He's given us a humble Christmas story to show us what it takes to be a part of his story. We have to humble ourselves. Y'all, Jesus loves humble things. He loves humble places. He, he loves humble hearts. I fear, though, every year we will see his humility, we'll hear of his humility, we'll sing of his humility, but because of how humble he truly was, we'll make no room for him in our hearts. So my encouragement for us this, this year, church, as you go home and you have your family dinners, maybe you open presents, maybe you save that for tomorrow, whatever it looks like for you, don't shut the door of your heart to Christ this year. Humble yourselves in light of the humility of a God who would come down. God who came down. God who was born and lived a life you could never live, died the death that you deserve so that you can live a life you don't deserve. That's what we have in the Christmas story. So let's bring back a little bit of marveling at the person of Christ this Christmas. Let me pray for us, and then our team will lead us through a few more songs as we conclude this, this afternoon, not morning. Let me pray for us. Father, we are deeply, deeply grateful for such a foolish story that, that God would be born to a virgin teenager, that God would take on flesh. And as we've seen over the last several weeks, as we read again today, it was to enter into our humanity. You came down 
you, you came down because we were hurting, because we could not save ourselves, yet we still try to do it day in and day out. So Lord, I pray that as we peer upon your humility this afternoon, this, this Christmas, that you would humble us, that our response would be to fall on our knees in light of such a humble Savior. We love you, Lord. We give you all the glory and the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Y'all all stand with me. We'll worship the Lord together.